If you would, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. This morning we'll be in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father, if you knew me. You would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, if you've been with us in recent weeks, you may have noticed that I stopped preaching last week on John chapter 7, verse 52, and I picked up the reading of the Gospel of John in John chapter 8, verse 12. And though I will not be preaching on that section of chapter 753 up through 8, verse 11 this morning, I do feel that I ought to speak briefly as to why I will not be. Now, most of your modern English translations mark off this section of the text and indicate that it was not found in the early manuscripts or that it was added in later manuscripts or something to that effect. And that, generally speaking, is true in manuscripts where the accounts of the woman caught in adultery are included, the account is put in in various places in the text. Most often, when it appears in the Gospel of John, it appears here in what we would consider John 7.53 through 8, verse 11, though in other uh, texts of the Gospel of John that include this account, sometimes it is placed after chapter 7, verse 44, sometimes after chapter 7, verse 36, or even after chapter 21, verse 25. And in one text of the Gospel of Luke, this account of the woman caught in adultery occurs after Luke 21, verse 38. The ancient church fathers from the first three centuries do not include this account in their expositions of John. And in the East, this trend continued for for much longer. And so, for example, this account of the woman uh, does not appear in the expositions of John given by uh, Chrysostom or uh, Cyril of Alexandria, who lived in the period of the late 4th, early 5th centuries. And on the other hand, uh, this account was known and was defended as genuine in the West. And Augustine went so far as to say that some had struck this account out of the Gospel of John because they, was aff- they were afraid that it would give their wives... Uh, boldness to sin in this way with impunity. And so Augustine thought that some had scratched this out of the Bible for that reason. So we have two basic possibilities here. First is that this account was inserted into the Gospel of John, or second, that this account was struck out 
from the Gospel of John because it was viewed uh, by some as too scandalous. Now, my own take on the account from 753 through 8 verse 11, and this is not unique to me, but my own take is that this likely is a genuine incident that occurred in the ministry of Jesus, but that it was not part of the gospel that John was inspired to write. A man named Papias, who lived in the late first and early centuries, was reportedly uh, acquainted with John and is said by the early church historian Eusebius to have related a story of a woman who was accused of many sins before the Lord. Eusebius also said that this account of the the woman was uh, in an ancient work called the Gospel According to the Hebrews. And so, in my estimation, it seems likely that this story is probably a true extra-canonical account of something that happened during the life and ministry of Jesus, that it was written down, though not by John, and that there was a desire to include it in an account of Jesus' ministry, but that there was some question as to where it ought to be placed. Hence, it was placed in different places in various texts of the Gospel of John. And the assumption that it was not written by John would go to explain why it's not found in the most ancient uh, manuscripts of the Gospel that we have. Now, if you are reading the text of John chapter 7, and if you jump from chapter 7, verse 52, through chapter 8, verse 12, the narrative actually flows quite reasonably from 752 to 8, verse 12. It just continues this oscillation, as it were, between Jesus' teaching and the opposition that was brewing against him. And so with that said, we're going to be considering uh, chapter 8, verses 12 through 20 this morning. And as we do so, we'll consider it under two main headings. Number one, follow the light. And number two, you can't know God the Father unless you know God the Son. So follow the light, and you can't know God the Father unless you know God the Son. Our Lord Jesus was still on this occasion speaking in Jerusalem, either at or just after the Feast of Booths. And I think it's quite possible that this was actually the same day in which he had spoken those words uh, up in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 37, where he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This may still, in fact, be the same day, perhaps. And I think if we consider the context in which Jesus was speaking at the Feast of Booths, it would actually make sense if Jesus said both of these things on the same day. Now, the the Jewish Mishnah, which was the the first major collection of the ancient Jewish oral traditions, described the the pouring of the the water that we we spoke of last week in connection with what Jesus said in verse 37. The, The Mishnah described it by saying, One who did not see the celebration of the place of the drawing of the water never saw celebration in his days. And then afterwards, the Mishnah continued very shortly thereafter to describe the lighting of the golden candelabra that stood on the tops of these poles that were erected in one of the courtyards of the temple. And there were these four golden basins at the top of of each of the pole to form these candelabrum. And for each uh, of the poles, there there was a ladder. And there was a, uh, the, the young boys who were training for the priesthood would climb, would climb up these ladders with, with pitchers of oil. And they would fill these basins with oil. And the candelabrum would be lit. And as the Mishnah put it, 
the light from the candelabra was so bright that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated from the place of the drawing of the water. The pious and the men of action would dance before the people who attended the celebration with flaming torches that they would juggle in their hands, and they would say before them passages of song and praise to God, and the Levites would play on lyres, harps, cymbals, and trumpets, and countless other musical instruments." And so in short, the, the Feast of Booze was this joyous feast where there was both the, the drawing of the water that they would draw from the pool of Siloam and then they would, would take it to the, to the, uh, the temple and pour out uh, along with the, the drink offering. And there was the lighting of these giant candelabrum there in one of the courtyards of the temple. And both of these events seem to form the background for, for what Jesus is saying. Chapter 7, verse 37, he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And now Jesus says here in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. And he says this in the midst, or I guess rather on the, the tail end of this festival, where these, these candelabrum would be lit such that they lit up every courtyard in Jerusalem. And just as the, the ceremony of the, the drawing of the water and the pouring it out in the temple was, was looking backwards to the, the water from the rock, and that the, uh, the Lord had provided in the wilderness and was also looking forward to the pouring out of the Spirit in, that would come in the Messianic age, so it seems also to have been with these lights as well. The, the lighting of these giant candelabrums seemed both to be looking back to the wilderness and also looking forward to God's plans for the future. So back in the day of the wilderness wandering, the Lord led his people with what? He led them with a cloud by day, with a pillar of fire by night. And so the, the lighting of these candelabrums seemed to be looking back to that, and yet also looking forward to the great light that was to come into the world in the Messianic age. And it is not uh, coincidental that in the, the Jewish liturgy for the first day of the Feast of Booths, they would read Zechariah 14, that passage that we had read together earlier. And in Zechariah 14, you have the combination of those images, both light and water. And so in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 6 through 9, we read this, that in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about at evening there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And so it's in this atmosphere with this scripture from Zechariah 14, having been read roughly a, a week before and with these lights in the temple courtyard in everyone's memory as they're looking back to God's provision of light in the wilderness and looking forward to the light that would come in the Messianic age. Jesus says these remarkable words in verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now in verse 12, we, we have three things that Jesus tells us. He, he tells us about himself. He tells us what it's like to live in the world without him. And he tells us the condition of those who follow him. He tells us about himself. He tells us about what it's like to live in the world without him. 
He tells us the condition of those who follow him. And let's, let's think about each of these in turn. First, Jesus tells us about himself, that he is the light of the world. And by speaking those words, Jesus was announcing to the crowd that he was the one for whom they were waiting. He was the one for whom they claimed to be waiting, anticipating, as they were, the Messianic age, the age in which the water would be poured out on thirsty ground, the age in which the living waters would flow out of Jerusalem, the age in which the light would come to the world by means of God's Messiah. And so it was prophesied in Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people's, But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Indeed, was this not the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, concerning that child who would be born to us, that son who would be given to us? Isaiah had said, the people who walk in darkness will see what? They'll see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And yet, Jesus not only claims here to be the light of the Jewish nation, but he claims to be the light of the world. And this also is in accord with the prophecies made concerning him. And so in Isaiah 42, 6, the father says of his servant, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. And again, Isaiah 49, 6, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And here, Jesus announces that he is that light. That he was the child who was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, that he's the servant of Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, that he is the one who comes and brings light to the darkness. Now, if you think about being in the dark, when you're in the dark, everything can get turned around. When I was growing up, I used to do some trapping, and and sometimes I'd be out checking my traps in the woods before school, and I can remember being turned around. And you think you're somewhere, and you come to find out you're not where you thought you were. You're off of where you had planned to be. And that's that's what happens when you're in the dark. You think that you perceive something. You think that certain things are right and that certain things are wrong, that certain things are true and certain things are false. But the problem is, when you're in the dark, your perceptions are all messed up. And then when the lights are turned on, you realize that things are are actually very different from what you had thought. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus brings light to our darkness. He shows us the way to God the Father because he is the way to God the Father. Jesus reveals things as they are. He shows us the truth and therefore exposes the falsehoods for what they are. He shows us what is right, and therefore he shows the wrong for what it is. In attempting to live life without Christ, we live in darkness. And that's that's what Jesus says when he says, He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He implies there that those who do not follow him walk in darkness. And so it is. Apart from Christ, we live in the dark. We can't see where we're going. We can't see what we ought to do. We can't see what we ought not to do. Left in the dark, we cannot find the way to God. We cannot find the purpose of life. 
We cannot find out how we ought to treat one another. We cannot find out what we ought to do for ourselves. And so, being in the darkness, we make a mess of things. And Isaiah described this so well in Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 9, where he said, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight among those who are vigorous like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Isaiah describes so well for us there what it is to be in the dark. You grope along, can't see the way, and everything is a mess. This is ugly and wicked all around. And this is why the world is the way that it is. But Jesus has come as the light of the world, so that whoever follows him will not live in darkness, but will have the light of life into the the darkness and the death that characterizes life in this fallen world. Jesus brings light, and those who follow him then have the light of life. It was said in Psalm 36, 9, as we sang this morning, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. And thus it is for us in Christ. Led by Christ who is the light, we walk in the light as he is in the light. And we have fellowship with him. And in the light which is given to us by Christ, we see light. We see Christ himself. We see him who is the truth. And we walk in that truth. In him, we begin to learn what is good and right. We learn why we were made that we were made for the glory of God. And in his light, we see light. In other words, things start to, to make sense. It's not that we understand everything here in this world, but we start having some sense of God's design and creation. We see how sin ruins everything. We see how Christ brings restoration by his death and resurrection for us. We see how things are headed towards a great restoration A new creation of which God says, Behold, I am making all things new. And even as we anticipate the restoration of creation itself at the second coming of our Lord, we experience even now new life in ourselves. We experience the truth of what Paul said when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus says, He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. What else can we do? But follow the light. 
If you just imagine that you were out hiking, I don't know how many of you like hiking, but Ruby and I do, and uh, just imagine that you were that you were out hiking, that you were out in some remote wilderness, that you were, so far as you knew, miles away from any other person, but somewhere along the line, you it became evident to you that you had taken a wrong turn, and, and that you were much, much further away from where you thought you were, and where you wanted to be, and where you thought you were going. You're not quite sure now where you are, not quite sure of the way back, and all the signs seem to indicate that you are very, very, very far away from your intended destination. And then just imagine sun sinking low over that mountain in the distance, bad weather setting in, freezing rain, sleet, whatever. You're unprepared to spend the night in the dark woods. And then just imagine that over that hilltop, you see someone walking, someone carrying a light, someone who was presumably knowing where they were going and could help to guide you where you needed to go. Wouldn't it be absolute folly to ignore the light and to stay away from it and to not seek help from that person who was carrying the light? And so it is also with Christ. Here we are in this dark and wicked world. Left to ourselves, we walk in the darkness of our sins. Our understandings are clouded by that darkness as well. The the fall and our sinfulness has affected our perceptions of reality in our minds. We can't tell where we're going. We can't tell even which direction to go. And then here comes Christ. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Would it not be foolishness and the height of stupidity to turn away from the light and to continue walking in darkness? Jesus Christ is the light. He's the light of the world, and he calls all who hear his gospel to follow him, which is to say to turn away from your sins and believe in him. And all who follow him will not walk in darkness. All who follow him will walk in the light of life. But those who ignore him and refuse to follow him remain in the darkness. This is tragic, but it is true that many remain apart from Christ to their eternal peril. And so John says in John three nineteen and 20 that this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So my friend, don't let that be you. Come to the light and walk in the light. There is grace and mercy to be found in Jesus Christ. Don't be kept back because of your sins. There's mercy, there's forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ. Follow him as the light. Now, as as this passage in John 8 continues, we we see a similar kind of back and forth between Jesus and his opponents as we've seen elsewhere here in this gospel, in John chapter 7, for instance. And so the Pharisees are probably picking up on what Jesus is, is claiming for himself when he claims to be the light of the world, and... They then proceed to try to to pick some holes into what he's saying and trying to discredit him. So in verse 13, they they try to call into question the validity of his testimony, since at this point it appears that Jesus alone is the one who is bearing witness concerning himself. 
Some of these who made this charge against him in, in verse 13 may well have been present at that earlier feast back in John chapter 5 when Jesus had said of himself in John 5.31, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And so they charge him here with the fact that he alone is testifying about himself, and therefore such testimony is invalid. But Jesus, as he responds to this, points out to them that his testimony is not just the testimony of any man, your common average man on the street. Rather, Jesus directs them to the fact that his testimony is the testimony of a divine person. He speaks here in a very veiled way, but when he says that he knows where he comes from, that he knows where he is going, and that they do not, when he says that kind of thing in verse 14, he's implying his divinity, that he is God, that he is the only begotten Son of the Father who came down from heaven. In other words, his testimony is not that of a mere man, but his testimony is that of God himself. And again, Christ returns to the subject of judgment. He had said to the crowd back in chapter 7, verse 24, that they were not to judge according to appearance, but to judge with righteous judgment. And here he says that they're judging according to the flesh. He's saying to them the same thing. You're judging according to sight, you're judging according to the flesh. They form their opinions of Christ and his mission and his teaching simply based on what they can see. They were not penetrating beneath the surface of that appearance. And Christ himself, on the contrary, says that he did not come to pass judgment on the world. That was not the purpose of his first coming. As we find in John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, Christ's second advent will be for the purpose of judgment, but his first coming It's for the purpose of salvation. And even though Christ did not come to judge the world, whenever he does judge, his judgment is true because he and the Father are one in their judgment. As he had said back in chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in verses 17 and 18, Jesus kind of circles back to this issue of of valid testimony. They had charged him with invalid testimony, and he circles back to this this issue, the, the testimony of two witnesses. And the two witnesses that Christ brings forward are himself and his Father. Christ testifies about himself. God the Father testifies about him as well. And so the Pharisees ask him then about his Father. Where is your Father? And Jesus responds there in verse 19 by telling them, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And those words of Jesus in verse 19 get to really the heart of the problem throughout all of this interaction of Jesus with the Pharisees. They didn't know him. They did not know his heavenly origins They did not know his purpose of coming, that he would go to the cross to die for his people, that he would rise from the grave and ascend into heaven to the right hand of the Father. They did not know him. They refused to listen to him. They refused to believe his divine testimony concerning himself. They refused to believe the multitude of other witnesses that Jesus brought forward concerning himself, as he did in the latter half of John chapter 5. They refused to believe the witness of the Father, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of Moses and the scriptures. And as a result 
of their hard-heartedness and their refusal to listen, they did not know Jesus, nor did they know God the Father. And ignorance of one is ignorance of the other. And the same is true for knowledge. That knowledge of Christ is also knowledge of the Father. And so Jesus says, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. To know Christ is to know the Father. In truth, the only way to know the Father is to know Christ. One will either be ignorant of both the Father and the Son, or will have knowledge of both the Father and the Son. And this is because no one can come to the Father except through the Son. And no one can truly come to the Son without coming to the Father as well. Because as Jesus would later say, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You'll either know both and love both, or you will be ignorant of both, and therefore still at enmity with both God the Father and God the Son, and therefore fall under the judgment of the Son when he returns on the last day. But if you know Christ, you know the Father as well. And this teaching of of Jesus in verse 19 points us to the, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the great truth that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. All other ways that claim to come to God will come up short. And this is something that that John repeatedly circles around to in his gospel. He had said in the the prologue of his gospel at the beginning, in John 1.18, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In other words, Jesus is the one who explains the Father. He's the one who reveals the Father to us. Jesus had said to Nicodemus in John 3, If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how will you believe if I told you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, there's no one to bring revelation of the Father to us except Jesus Christ. And Jesus says in John 6, 45 and 46, It is written in the prophets, They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. In other words, no one has seen the Father except the Son. And the Father teaches by means of his word, and everyone who learns what the Father is teaching comes to Christ. And if there is anyone who does not come to Christ, it is clear that they have not been listening to the Father. Jesus had said earlier in that same chapter, in John 6:40 that this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It is those who behold the Son, those who believe in Him, who have eternal life. It is those who know the Father. Jesus says here, if you know me, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. The point is, is that if you don't know Christ, you don't know God, you cannot come to the Father except through the Son. No one will be saved except they be born again and brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He alone is the mediator between God and man. He alone is the one who could and the one who did, in fact, take the sins of his people upon himself on the cross. He alone could satisfy the debt which we owed to God because of our sins. And he alone did satisfy that debt which we owed. And in the death of Jesus, we see the love of God for sinners. We find in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And though this plan of salvation is exclusive, 
It's only found in Christ. We only have this salvation by trusting in Christ. Nevertheless, this is a very clear manifestation of the love of God for us. It is a manifestation of mercy and grace. And this is because God was under no obligation to provide any way of salvation at all. But he did. And he did it by sending his only begotten son into the world to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And we're called to to turn away from our sins. We're called to, to reckon ourselves as dead to our sins, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We find in 1 Peter 4, 2, that we are to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And the situation can be summed up in this way, as, as John would write it in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so if there's anyone here who has not come to Christ, has not turned away from your sins and trusted in him, I urge you today, trust in him. Christ is the light. If you walk with him, you have the light of life. If you don't, you walk in darkness. Light and darkness, heaven and hell, life and death are before you today. What will it be for you? And for those of you who have come to know Christ, rejoice. Because through Christ you have come to know the Father. Through Him you have received new life. Because of Christ you are no longer walking in darkness. You have come to the light. You have followed the light. And so my dear brothers and sisters, continue on walking in the light. Just as you have begun, so now continue on. Your salvation was by grace through faith in the beginning. And so it continues even now. Keep trusting, keep believing, keep serving, keep turning from sin, keep walking with Christ, keep walking in the light. Stay awake and keep going. As Paul tells us in Romans 13, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. And so brothers and sisters, take heart. Heaven is not that far away. Though it may seem like it now, in the grand scheme of eternity, it's not actually too far away from us. And so keep walking in the light. Keep rejoicing in the knowledge that the darkness that we see all around us will one day come to an end. That God will one day bring about the dawning of the eternal day. A day in which there will be no more night. A day in which we will dwell in that city when we have no need for the light of the sun or of the moon to shine upon us because the glory of God will illumine us and the Lamb of God himself will be our lamp. And so may God hold us fast until that day. May he keep us walking in the light until then. And may all praise and glory be given to our great and gracious God. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the great truth that Jesus is the light of the world, that he brings light to our darkness, and that one day we will dwell with him in his eternal kingdom, where your glory will illumine us and Christ himself will shine upon us. We praise you for that, and we pray that you would strengthen us in these few days of our earthly pilgrimage. Pray that you would hold us fast. We praise you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.